as your word says, that uh, there's nothing that we can do, that once we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but because of your great love, you made us alive. And so we just praise you for that. Father, I pray for our time today, that it's profitable, that it's honoring to you. Uh, Father, that uh, we know that we have met with you, uh, that we've heard from you, that we have just been in your presence, dear God. And, and pray, Father, uh, for you to richly bless what we do here today. It's in your beautiful name we ask it. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good. It's a big crowd today. It's good to see you guys. Uh, for the 1st of August, it's hard to believe that it's already the 1st of August. Summer has flown by, so raise your hands if you're ready for school to start again. Yay! All the, none of the parents raised their hands. So I was like, okay. All the kids are like mourning sackcloth and ashes. Uh, today, I, where is he? He's not in here. Oh, today is Andrew Hunt's birthday, so happy birthday to Andrew. Oh, there he is. He's, oh, and Devin. Yeah, and Devin. Andrew and Devin. Uh, so 20 years old, both of them. So congratulations. Uh, happy birthday. If you see them, please congratulate them. And give, them a, give Devin a hug and Andrew. Okay. All right. Yeah. A sl- <laughs> Carla said it, not me. Okay. So Kent usually teaches on the first of the month. So if you're visiting... Uh, I'm not the normal guy on the first of the month. Kent usually is, but he and Christy are not here. They're on a well-earned mini-vacation. And I had intended to follow up my teaching on critical race theory with another hot-button cultural topic. And I was going to teach on the transgender ideology, which has just kind of swept everything in the culture before it. It's redefined what it means to be male and female. And then as I was praying and I was thinking about it, I just realized, you know, I just, I did not have the emotional bandwidth uh, to do something like that right now. Uh, You think critical race theory is a deep and intense subject. It is nothing compared to the transgender conversation. Um, I do think that that's something, it's a topic that's important for the church to get a handle on. I don't think that we've reckoned fully with what that means. I think that on the back end of this, there are going to be people who have been devastated and hurt by it, and the church needs to have a response to that. So I do think it's an important topic. Uh, I just, I just, I couldn't do it, guys. I'm sorry. And you're probably glad I didn't do it, to be honest. So I may tackle that at some point in the future. Uh, I'm hoping Christ comes back and I don't have to. And so as Mike says, that would be a great day, right? And, uh, and I won't have to worry about it, but maybe sometime in the future. So I, what I am going to teach on today is something that is way less controversial, but is not that much talked about in evangelical circles. And I'm going to talk about a book, I'm going to talk about themes from a book that Mike mentioned last week. And I forgot to thank Mike for the setup for this. So Mike, he's in the basement doing security, so thank you for the setup for this, but the book is called Gentle and Lowly, and it's written by a pastor named Dane Ortland. Some of you, if you've read it, raise your hand. Uh, yeah, so quite a few of you have read it. Uh, we're hoping we have purchased copies from the publisher. They're not here yet, but we're hoping that sometime this month we'll be able to get a copy to you guys, and you'll be able to read it for yourself. It's an easy read. It's 140-something pages. It's, it's not that difficult to read. It is actually... Uh, 
It is actually based on a treatise by a 17th century Puritan theologian named Thomas Goodwin. And that is also, his treatise is also available. It's, I have the Kindle version. I think it was 99 cents or something. And I'd commend both of them to you if you can get through the old English of Thomas Goodwin. It, it, it is a good read. Um, just a side note that has nothing to do with the sermon. Thomas Goodwin was Oliver Cromwell's chaplain. So Oliver Cromwell, the Lord Protector of England. So as I said, that has nothing to do with anything. But it might be a trivia question at some point. So file that one away. The, the premise of Ortland's book and of Goodwin's treatise is and it's why I've titled the message this way, is that Christ's heart towards us, his, his core, the central thing, we might, we might say what gets Jesus out of bed in the morning, we might say it that way, is what is that? And, and Ortland and Goodwin say that it is his love for his people, his love for those who belong to him. Ortland builds his book around Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, which is Jesus' words, and I'm going to read them. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, that's the name of the book, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, I read both books together, and as I was reading them, I'm looking at the scriptures looking up the passages that they were both citing. And, and a couple of things sh struck me. One is that this is not a new teaching. It's, it's all over the New Testament. It's actually all over the Old Testament, right? Is that God, the Godhead's feelings towards those who are his covenant people. How, do, how, does, how does God and Jesus really feel about uh, Neither of these authors broke any kind of new theological ground. And we're not going to either today. If you have a study sheet, you see it's pretty stripped down because this is a pretty simple message. The other thing that struck me was, as I'm reading the scriptures and I'm affirming the truth of them, it, it, I kept coming back to, yeah, but. Yeah, but. Why is this so hard? Why is it so hard to believe? Why is it so hard to really grasp that Christ feels this way about me, that God feels this way about me? I think there's a lot of reasons for that. One of, one of the reasons that I thought of is my Roman Catholic upbringing. Okay, so I, like Mike and Kathy, I was raised Roman Catholic, uh, which is really good on works-based theology and not so much grace. So I learned as a Roman Catholic how to have a relationship with the church, not so much how to have a relationship with Christ. And it was shame and guilt or pretty... Pretty standard Catholic things. So I, I think that's one reason. But I think most, if not all of us, I don't want to lump everybody into one basket. I think to varying degrees, we have all imbibed the lie that somehow Christ's love for us is conditional. It's conditional on what we do. If, if, if I have my quiet time, Jesus is pleased with me. If I treat my wife well, Jesus is pleased with me. If I don't, then he's really not. We kind of, maybe we, we all harbor, I think, we, I think, let me put it this way. I think we would all affirm the truth of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved, 
and it's a gift of God, not of yourselves, right? So that no one can boast. I think absolutely everybody in this room would say yes and amen to that. But maybe a lot of us, maybe it's just me and I need to see a counselor. But I think a lot of us harbor the seed of doubt that having purchased us, Christ has this kind of low-level buyer's remorse a lot of the time. Okay? Like, like he didn't really get that great of a deal. It looked good on the lot, maybe, but you get it home, not so much. Right? Is, maybe you guys are not resonating with that at all. And what we see in Scripture is the, is the opposite of that. Okay? But what we also see, and I'm, what I'm hoping to show you today, is that Christ's attitude towards us has everything to do with who he is and nothing or very little to do with who we are or what we do. And so when I look at myself or you look at yourself, you're like, yeah, yeah, I probably have buyer's remorse too. But, but that's not who Christ is. And so I'm hoping we're going we're gonna to see that today. So Thomas Goodwin laid out his book with a series of proofs that he says showed Christ's heart for the church. And I'm going to follow his example. So if you, you look at your study sheet, there's three proofs that I'm going to use to make my case for why I say that Christ's heart towards us is one of fervent, steadfast, covenantal love. He, he's not disappointed in us. He has joy when he thinks about us. And the first proof is the incarnation. Now, theologians over the centuries have spilled rivers of ink trying to explain the incarnation. How is it that God came down and took on flesh? And it's still a mystery. We don't understand it. Anybody that says they have it figured out doesn't. And I don't want to use a theological treatment of that. What I want to do is I want to look at I want to look at how the incarnation shows Christ's heart for his people, for those who belong to him. So this is how Paul describes Jesus in Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So this is a beautiful, beautiful picture of Christ. This is a picture of Christ who is unimaginably powerful indescribably glorious, preeminent in everything. You think about Jesus, that nothing that exists was created without him. Everything was created through him, by him, and for him. There is no higher authority. He's it. There there is nobody above him. Paul says in Philippians that one day every knee in heaven, on earth, and under earth is going to bow and proclaim that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, right? Yes and amen to all of that. And so scripture talks about this Jesus who is mighty and powerful and glorious, and, and that is who he is. But this is also 
what Paul says about him in Philippians 2. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus spent the 33 years that he was here in obscurity, humility, and humbleness. If you read the gospel accounts, you see Jesus. He was going throughout uh, Israel, and he would touch unclean people, people who had leprosy, people who had uh, discharges of blood, People that, if he touched them, according to Jewish law, would have made him ceremonially unclean, right? Uh, He put up with the Pharisees. He put up with them trying to malign him and slander him, trying to entrap him. He wandered around Israel for, in his public ministry for three plus years, hungry tired, homeless, with this band of 12 guys who most of the time didn't know up from down, were were constantly arguing about who was greatest in the kingdom, asking to be first, Uh, not not the A-team, okay? Casting out demons, proclaiming the coming of the kingdom. At the Last Supper, we see a Jesus who took the position of the lowliest slave, and washed his disciples' feet to give them and to give us an example of how we should interact with each other and how we should love one another. Um, he, en- he endured Roman justice, right? An unjust trial, a sham trial by the Sanhedrin, by the Roman authorities. He was beaten. He was crucified from the cross. He asked God the Father to forgive those uh, who were doing this because they didn't, they didn't know what they were doing. Separated from the Father on the cross without complaint and without retaliation. And, and why? Why did Jesus do all of that? Um, you know, Ephesians 5 says that he gave himself so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So look around the room. Look, look to your left. Look to your right. You guess okay. You guys can do it. Um, yeah, uh, the the people in this room are the church for whom Christ gave Himself. All right, the people in this room are are who Christ gave Himself for. And and again, not that He was getting a great deal, right? Rom- Romans five. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, not, not when you had everything together, not when you uh, were all put together. It's while we were a hot mess, Christ died for us, we might paraphrase. You, if, we, if we stop and think about it, so you go from Colossians 1 from, from a being who is without peer, preeminent in everything, and you go to the cross, you know, the level of condescension is just, it's staggering. It is just, it's amazing. And I don't think that we fully realize that sometimes. I think we don't, we don't stop and we don't think about why 
we don't think about the level that Christ stooped to purchase a people for himself, right? And, and I think that's one of the reasons that we, th- we often don't understand the depth of his love and the depth of how he feels about it. It's because we just don't stop and take time to think about it. But if we do, it, it's hard to imagine what could be more proof of his love than the fact that he took on flesh. You know, Hebrews says he took it on so that he could be our faithful high priest, which we're going to talk about in a, in a little bit, so that he, he would know everything that we knew. Uh, it's just, you, right? You, we need to sit and we need to marinate in these truths sometimes to, to get this. Um, another proof of Christ's feeling towards us is the arrangements he made uh, to protect us, to comfort us, to guard us, to guide us while he was going to be absent for a while. When I was stationed in Japan, if, if you didn't know, I was in the military for 27 years. Oops, excuse me. Um, and I got stationed, we got stationed in Japan, and then shortly afterwards, I don't know what, a month later or something, I got deployed to Saudi Arabia right before the events of 9-11. And because I was gone and Trisha was going to stay in Japan, she was essentially a single parent, we had to do what's called a family care plan. We had to put this thing together so that in case um, she had to evacuate Japan for whatever reason, a tsunami or a typhoon or whatever, and wouldn't be able to travel with the girls, again, for whatever reason, uh, that we would have a plan in place to care for them. And so we had to have somebody lined up in Japan to get on a plane with them, take them to either Hawaii or Seattle, depending on where the military was going to drop them off. And then we had to have somebody in the States who would agree to come and get them. We had to have financial arrangements made so that until I could either get back or she could get to them, somebody would be able to take care of them. We'd have a short-term caregiver and a long-term caregiver. But anyway, it had to be this really detailed plan so that somebody would be able to step in and care for our children in the way that we would because we weren't able to, right? I was in Saudi Arabia. Who knows when I was coming back? And she might not, and in fact was told that she might not be able to travel with all the kids. We had three at the time. And she said, you might have to split them up. Um, and so, uh, which is something a mom wants to hear. So we had to have this plan put together, essentially is what I'm trying to say. So if you will allow me, I want to posit that John chapters 14 through 17 is, in a way, Jesus putting together a family care plan for us because he knew he was leaving. He knew he was going away temporarily. And so in John chapter 14, he tells his disciples, he's he's going away, and he's going away to prepare a place for them so that they can be with him at some point and that he's going to come back for them. So he promises that he's going to come back. He reiterates that promise in verse 18. He says, I won't leave you as orphans. I'm coming back for you. And we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a little bit. And I don't want to steal Christmas thunder, but he instituted the Lord's Supper so that we would remember. Right? It says remember. And that we would remember his promise that he's going to come back for us one day. And not only that we would remember, did I just, yeah, just, yeah, sorry. Um, you'll get, you're going to hear it again, and that's a great thing. It's, repetition is good. Not only that we would remember that we would look forward to the day 
when we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus said, I'm not going to drink the fruit of the vine again until I do it with you in my kingdom. Okay? So that he gave us a memorial so that we can look forward. Jesus, knowing the kind of people that we are, right, knew that we would need someone more than a memorial because we're forgetful people. Life happens and we forget things. And so he said that he was going to give us his spirit. And he was going to give us his spirit to guide us into all truth. If you look at Galatians, the role of the spirit is to produce fruit in us. It's to change us. It's to refine us. It's to, uh, the spirit's role, his role is to, to change us. And so Jesus says, I'm not, this part of, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to leave you my spirit. This is what Jesus says in John 14, 16 through 18. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So again, just like the incarnation, I don't think that we fully appreciate sometimes what it means that the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead lives in me that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus knew he didn't want to leave us as orphans. So he said, I can't be here. I need to go and prepare a place for you so that I can come back and get you. But in the meantime, I'm going to send the helper. I'm going to send the comforter. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to live inside of you, to guide you and protect you. Okay? Yeah, I just... You know, you, you think about it, and you just, you, your mind just kind of goes that way, right? You just can't, can't wrap your head around it. But that's the kind of love that Christ has for us. He wasn't going to leave us as orphans. He was going to leave us with everything that we needed to thrive and to live and to do the work that he'd called us to do. Okay, and the third proof is how Christ feels about us when we sin. And honestly, I think this is where we mostly get tripped up, right? Maybe the first two, you're kind of, yeah, I got that. But what happens when I sin? What does Christ really feel about me when I mess up? You know, both Goodwin and Ortland would say that Christ, in, instead of moving away from us, that he actually moves towards us when we sin. And I, I, think, they're, I think they're right. And so I want to... I want to talk about that. But before I do, I want, to, I want to caveat that by saying, I am by no means saying that we can sin indiscriminately without repentance and that Jesus just says, oh, I love you guys. It's okay. It's, it's, it's not a problem. Just, just keep doing that. First uh, John 3, 4 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So John is, John is absolutely clear that if our lives are characterized by sin, if we keep on sinning, we can, we can call ourselves Christians all day long, and you do not know the Father. You do not know the Son. You have no part in Him. So that, that is absolutely not what I'm talking about, that you can just sin. 
You know, Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 6. He has this laundry list of people that practice these sins and says they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? But what happens when we do sin? Because we do occasionally sin, right? You know, most of us, we get on the road to sanctification, and sanctification is a lifelong process. It's a lifelong process of putting off the old and putting on the new. And, and sometimes the old is comfortable. So we want to, instead of putting off the old and putting on the new, I want to I go back and I want to I put the old back on because it's comfortable. I'm used to it. And, and in those cases, what happens? What happens? And John is going to tell us again. First John 2. He says, uh, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, thank you. Um, an advocate is somebody who speaks for and on behalf of somebody else. An advocate doesn't accuse. An advocate doesn't condemn. An advocate speaks for on behalf of somebody. And so, so John says Christ is our advocate when we do sin. He's there blunting the accusation of Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren. He's reminding the Father, no, I'm the propitiation for their sin. No, yes, Larry messed up again, yes. But he's mine. He belongs to me, right? And so that's, that's what Christ does for us. And guys, we, sh- we should have genuine sorrow when we sin. It, it should really gut us. And if you're like me, I'm convinced that most of our repentance is performative. It's just designed to make me feel better. Um, Again, maybe I'm the only one and I need a counselor. Maybe you actually uh, are repentant. But it should really bother us when we sin. What we shouldn't do, as Mike talked about last week, is we, sh- we shouldn't wallow in that. We shouldn't beat ourselves up about that until enough time has passed or I feel better. We shouldn't withdraw from Christ when we've sinned. Uh, as he said last week, that's, that's great Roman Catholic theology on penance. That is not biblical teaching on repentance. It bears no resemblance to it. The, the, you know, the only remedy, the thing we should do when we sin is we should acknowledge that sin before God. We should thank him for his grace, ask for his forgiveness, and then move on. And Paul, Paul says he put everything behind him. He looked forward. We should do that. Confess our sins, ask for forgiveness, ask for grace to not sin again, and then move on. Not only is Christ our advocate, but he's our high priest. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because Mike did a really good job last week talking about Jesus as our high priest. He always lives to make intercession for us. So there is never a time when Christ is not interceding for us. He doesn't take coffee breaks, doesn't take bathroom breaks, doesn't take vacations, uh, doesn't stop when we mess up. 
when we're sleeping, he's still interceding. There, there is never a time when Christ is not at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. And again, you know, I keep coming back to this thing. We, we, need, we need to sit. These, these, are, these are not, these are truths. They're not, you know, they're not great theological truths, right? This, this is Christianity 101, essentially, is what I'm saying. What we need to do is we need to think about it. We need to, to marinate in those truths. That there is never a time where Jesus is not interceding for us. We're going to talk about some practical effects, but I want to recap quickly because I know I've given you guys a lot of information. So, the sec- Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the one through whom, by whom, all things were created, comes to earth, clothes himself with humanity, lays aside his equality with God. He wanders around with a group of men proclaiming the goodness, good news of the kingdom, humbly submits to an unjust prosecution and death. Uh, prior to his ascension, he makes ample provision for those he's going to leave behind, leaves us promises of his return. And then at the right hand of the Father, he's our advocate and he's our intercessor. And so I just want to ask, does, does that sound like someone who is not madly, crazily in love with us, right? And again, it, it's not because of us. It's not because we're all that. It's not because, it's because of who he is and that he desired to do that. He desired to present us to himself as a beautiful bride. Okay? Christ's heart towards us is one of love and devotion. It's just something we can't, really get our heads around. So I do want to talk about some practical implications of, of understanding that. Um, the first one is, I don't have a biblical grounding for this. It's more based in observation of human nature. But have you ever been around people that you're just not really sure how they feel about you? They're Maybe they're standoffish, or maybe they're not friendly for whatever reason. Uh, but they're, you're just never sure where you stand with this person, okay? So the question is, is that somebody that you open up to? Is that somebody that you are drawn to? Is that somebody you want to spend time with? And I would say for me, it's no. I don't want to spend time with somebody like that. I don't want to. I want to spend time with people who I know enjoy my company, who I know are there for me, who I know love me. And, and guys, it's the same kind of thing with Christ, right? If we have this idea that Jesus is always a little grumpy with us, he's uh, have a little bit of buyer's remorse, he's not really happy that we belong to him, what are we going to do? Is, is that, is that somebody that we're going to open up to? Are, are we going to desire to read God's word? Are we going to desire to spend time with him? Are we going to desire to go to him? We're, we're not, right? You're just kind of, you're going to hold back. But, but when you understand who Christ really is and what his heart really is to you, that's freeing. That's freeing because you, you understand and you know, wow, i I want to be in Christ's presence because there's glory and he's pleased with me and he has joy when I show up. 
You know, Hebrews 4 says, let us enter the throne room boldly, right? Enter, we, because we're sons, because we've been given that, we can enter the throne room boldly. Throw open the doors and say, I need grace. I need help. And, it, and it's not like the story of Esther, right? Where, you know, if, if he didn't hold out the thing, the, the scepter, you were dead, right? God is always holding out the scepter to us. Always pleased to see us. And guys, when we, when we get that, it, it, changes, it changes your relationship. It changes your motivation for things. You desire to be in the Word. You desire to pray. You desire to be more with Christ. The other thing that helps us understanding that kind of love helps us to do is it helps us to endure trials and suffering. Okay, so trials come out of nowhere a lot of times. And they can be disorienting. We just spent an entire year being disoriented, right? And it doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime soon. And who would have thought two years ago, January, this little virus was going to upend everything? Uh, nobody. If, if we have this idea of Christ that he's kind of grumpy and he's, he's, he's just really not happy most of the time, we're not going to endure trials well, okay? You know, Christ is about changing us and conforming us. So you're going to go through the trial no matter what, right? Because Jesus is after his glory and you're good. Uh, so you're going through the trial. You, you get to choose how you go through the trial, but you're going through the trial because God's got something bigger in mind. And when we have a false idea of who Christ is and how he feels about it, this can, you can have this pity party, right? Why me? Why am I doing this? Why, am I, why is Christ picking on me? Uh, the flip side of that is when we know that Jesus loves us, we know he's for us, you, you go through trials better. doesn't mean they're easy. I'm not trying to minimize trials. I'm not trying to say that if you come down with a sickness, you say, yay, I have a sickness. I'm not absolutely not saying that at all. It, it doesn't necessarily make the trial better. And I don't want to call what is not good, good. But it does change your attitude through the trial. And it's also important to understand because we all have times of discipline. Right? There, there are times, yeah, we always like to give the Israelites a hard time, right? They, they, they were such a stiff-necked people and, and had hard foreheads. And, and we are exactly the same as they are. We are not any different. If, if we were back in Israel during the Exodus times, we had been complaining about the flesh pots of Egypt as well, right? We'd have been complaining that there's no water. We would have been complaining about the manna. We were exactly the same. And sometimes, because we're stiff-necked and stubborn people, Jesus has to take us to the woodshed, metaphorically, right? He has to discipline us. Some of us that are a little harder-headed get more trips to the woodshed. Some of us are a little more compliant, less. But everybody, at some point, goes to the woodshed. You know, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. Um, it says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Right? The Lord disciplines 
the one he loves, and chastises every son whom he receives. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say that if you don't experience that, that that's a sign of illegitimacy. You do not belong to God. All right? You know, discipline is not necessarily fun. We don't enjoy it. But we can endure it and we can learn from it when we understand where it comes from. It comes from Christ's loving hand. It comes from a heart that wants what's good for us. You know, the people say that hate is the opposite of love, and really it's not. Apathy is the opposite of love. If you don't care about somebody, you just let them do whatever they want to do and suffer the consequences for that. If you love somebody, if you care for somebody, you warn them, you correct them, you train them, and that's what Christ does for us. I'm going to wind down. Uh, in his epilogue, so what do, you, what do we do with this? In, in the epilogue to the book, Gentle and Lowly, Ortland tells the reader, uh, he says, what do, I, what do I do with this information that you've given me? And, and Ortland's advice is just to rest in that. Rest in the knowledge that Christ loves you, that Christ feels that way about you. I would say that's good advice, but I would add to that is that we really have to fight for this knowledge because it's counterintuitive, right? Everybody's in here shaking their heads, and 30 minutes after you leave the building, you're going to be faced with something, and you're going to be tempted to go back and, and not believe that Christ's heart towards us is really what, not what I say it is, what Scripture says it is. Don't, don't take what I say. Take what Scripture says about Christ's heart. And we have to fight for that knowledge. We have to keep coming back to that over and over and over and over. That it's not because I'm all this, but it's because of who Christ is that that's his heart towards me. And I'm telling you guys, if we can get that knowledge, it will change us. It will change you. It, it will give you freedom to love. It will give you all kinds of benefits that we just, if we just have to fight for that knowledge. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And while they do, um, if you would stand, we're going to read from my favorite passage in all of Scripture, uh, Romans 8. Okay, let's read this together. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us.